Hello and welcome to A Future Made. I'm Anna Podzajski, material scientist and writer. And I'm Robbie Armstrong, a reporter and journalist. Together we are bringing you A Future Made, a podcast by Harriet Watt University. Throughout the series we'll be finding out how pioneering research at Harriet Watt in the fields of science, business, technology, psychology, design and engineering is helping to change the future, solve the problems of today and make an impact on the global stage. This is part two in our psychology mini-series and today we're talking about language and communication and hearing from the university's School of Social Sciences. So in terms of the way that we communicate, there's one technique that I've tried to use quite often, which is called appreciative inquiry. And this technique is really about being driven by open curiosity. We'll speak to academics in the Department of Psychology, plus we'll chat to Harriet Watt alumna Shaima Elag. So Anna, we discussed autism and technological interventions in the last episode and we're returning to autism again this week. We'll be hearing from Dr Mary Stewart first. She's an associate professor at the School of Social Sciences and her work involves assessment, intervention and interpersonal skills with a particular focus on autism and mental health. And here she is dispelling a common preconception about people with autism. There's been an assumption that when an autistic person and a non-autistic person communicate, there may be interventions required for that autistic person to change. Um, But recent studies um, show that autistic people can communicate very well with each other. And so there's been studies looking at how an autistic person communicates with another autistic person and compared that to how autistic people communicate with non-autistic people and how two um, pairs of non-autistic people communicate. And what's found is that autistic people communicate just as well with each other um, as non-autistic people communicate with each other. It's where the chain might be autistic, non-autistic, autistic, non-autistic, that there is therefore a problem. So one has to ask then, well, why are we saying the intervention has to lie with the autistic person? And we want to look more broadly. Um, And so there's a number of theories that have come up around this and what we're really interested in our lab is is how this relates to mental health and well-being so there's been some theories called like the double empathy problem which suggests that the difficulties and interactions between autistic and non-autistic people are due to different communication styles and a lack of shared experiences so if there are these difficulties in communication and difficulties with getting on with people, how does that affect things like social motivation? How does that affect somebody getting into work? How does that affect an older autistic person trying to access social care and getting the support that they may need as they age? How does it affect ability to work within a school or a university? Yeah, so we were talking last episode um, about that shocking statistic from the ONS from 2021 that was 21.7% of the autistic population are actually in employment. So we're clearly missing out on a lot of untapped talent there. And, you know, Mary makes the point that um, it's not, it shouldn't be, the onus shouldn't be on the autistic population to change what they're doing in order to kind of fit in 
with the non-autistic population. We're so behind and only just now starting to make adaptations for people that don't fit in that kind of standard model. Mary's work basically focuses on solutions that help to facilitate neurodivergent people to flourish rather than expecting them in quite an unfair fashion really to adapt their own behaviour to meet these so-called societal norms. And this helps to enhance social inclusion and participation. And some of the studies they carry out, they actually involve like complete co-production of the work with people with autism. So they are involved in every step of the research and every aspect, which I think is really cool and really forward thinking as well. Um, She explained that the work with autistic people has tended to focus on something called a deficit model. And this is where there's basically an assumption that the autistic person would have to change and that they have an impairment and they require an intervention rather than looking at their own strengths and potential. And here she is on why these deficit models are so damaging to people's mental health. That can make them feel really othered, so feel make them feel really different to everyone else and feel that they have a need. Autistic people are much more likely to have depression and anxiety, so they're much more at risk of mental ill health and poorer well-being. So we've been doing some studies which look at factors such as social motivation, well-being, mental health, depression, anxiety. And there's studies looking at also camouflaging and suicide by colleagues across across the UK uh, and across the world. But what we've been finding is that although there's an assumption that autistic people aren't socially motivated, that's not the case. Autistic people can be socially motivated um, and that can vary from person to person. So some autistic people are very socially motivated while others are less so. But when social confidence is affected, social so somebody's confidence in interacting may be affected. And that seems to have a pathway from social confidence through to social motivation, through to loneliness, through to depression. So we know that autistic people also report much higher levels of loneliness. So this pathway is really important because it shows where we can identify where there may be potentials to intervene within that pathway. So helping to support that social confidence, maybe changing the environment rather than the autistic people. She also gave me some key points to think about in terms of language and communication. So some of these are maybe obvious, but stuff that we perhaps haven't thought about so much. So avoiding ambiguity and just making sure that we're being explicit in what we say. So that's a really obvious point, but also something that's super important is to just be very clear, you know, if you're giving instruction or if you're communicating a point. Another one is not using sarcasm or irony. And if asking an autistic person something where they're going to have to think about things or remember particular events or whatever, then maybe give them the questions beforehand, discuss what you're going to be talking about. Um, And also make sure that the language is very straightforward. I think this list is so useful to bear in mind. And it's stuff that's you know, we should all be trying to practice all the time to make sure that the stuff we're communicating is going to be accessible to everybody. Um, I think workplaces are, you know, getting there with their accessibility um, sort of training and stuff, but you can never be reminded of this stuff enough, I don't think. 
Yeah, and I, I think maybe British society, our idea of etiquette and politeness uh, can make it particularly difficult because we often don't say things in direct ways. We go in a roundabout way in order to not offend people. Whereas I think perhaps from hearing about how Germans communicate a lot, like my partner speaks German and they don't do that. They just go straight to the point, which is probably a lot easier, to be fair, to understand. Yeah, you're right. Like when people communicate directly to British people, we can sometimes take that as an offence. <laughs> we can be offended by that, um, which doesn't help. And so we, you're right, we we kind of communicate in roundabout ways. We apologise a lot. There's sarcasm and irony, which is really not helpful for people that think in different ways. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we heard from Deborah Hall in the last episode. She is a professor of positive psychology in the School of Social Sciences. And we talked a fair bit about well-being in the last episode. A lot of Deborah's work involves student well-being. And here she is on the changing nature of academia and the importance of teaching good communication skills. Education these days is not just about trying to achieve academic excellence but it's also about helping students develop those future skills that can help them be successful in an uncertain world. Things like um, having um, good well-being, being very resilient to cope with life's ups and downs and to get back up um, if you have any knocks or setbacks. And also those professional skills that are really important in the workplace. Things like good communication, leadership skills, time management skills, good emotional intelligence, all of those skill sets that employers are looking for. So we're looking at how we can best tailor our educational practice to deliver all of those um, things to students and help them develop not just the skills and the knowledge, but also the right mindset and the right behaviours. I think this reflects a shift in academia as well, where we have tended to see students as being passive recipients of information. And we're moving beyond that now to try and engage more in dialogue and, you know, interact with the information rather than just give students information and expect them to digest it all just like that. On top of this, she also stressed the importance of fostering strong relationships at university too. So in terms of the way that we communicate with one another, there's one technique that that I've tried to use quite often in the way that I interact with students and with colleagues from positive psychology coaching, which is called appreciative inquiry. And this technique is really about being driven by open curiosity. So look for something that you're interested in following up in what a student or another member of staff has said. Um, Try and look for for the positives um, and have a conversation around that. And usually if if you express interest, genuine interest in finding out more about a person or about what a person knows, then you get a much more positive reaction um, and often more disclosure, more more open disclosure and and better communication. So that's one of the the techniques that that I've been using and and also trying to share that with, with other academic staff. That's really interesting to me because that kind of interpersonal 
skills required there it sounds like her approach is to kind of treat that as a learned skill and you know put a name to it and you know teach those like I said kind of soft skills um and it's these skills that we I think academia traditionally doesn't do particularly well at equipping students to have um even academics themselves you know they're taught to be an academic by doing research right that's the rung of the ladder the career ladder that you have to climb is going from research and then you might find yourself in teaching, but also supervision, which involves pastoral care and doing presentations and becoming a writer. And like all of these sort of professions that are professions in their own right are all kind of crammed onto somebody that's trying to be an academic. And so often they're not taught. So they're learning on the job how to teach and um, how to communicate, how to write, um, which is a very tall order, I think. Um, and so I think those types of skills being valued in in academics and kind of being taught formally um, is is a really important thing to be able to, as Deborah says, foster those relationships and make sure that those interpersonal skills are, yeah, really valued. And and these interpersonal relationships and you know fostering these strong relationships as well that also applies to staff student relationships as well mm. as Deborah explains. So another element of communication that our research has highlighted as really important from the student perspective is when they experience academic staff talking to them, not just about their course content, but when academic staff show a genuine interest in them as an individual person. Particularly during the pandemic, We've all struggled in various ways. And when staff reach out and just say, you know, how are you today? How are you feeling? Leaving the channels of communication open so that if a student is, has got a, a personal issue that they want to talk about, that they feel that relationship is safe and secure and that they can approach staff um, in a pastoral context as well as academic learning, um, that really also helps promote a thriving environment for, for best student learning. When we think of teachers at school, you know, at high school, school-aged students, um, so much emphasis is put on safeguarding and pastoral care. Um, and yet when students reach university level, that tends to fall by the wayside. And so those ones that do stick out as being, um, treating the relationship more like sort of colleagues, but um, really emphasising the importance of that pastoral stuff, the human connection, the human communication. Um, yeah, those are the ones that really stick out for us. Um, and that relationship, I think, is really important. And it serves as a model, I think, for students to then go out into the workplace and be appropriate colleagues and have an idea of what a work working relationship should look like and what professionalism is. There's a fine line between friendship and, and professional colleagues. And I think a good working relationship for a student and a lecturer at university can can be that, can be that good model. To go back to Deborah, like the, the planet is obviously rapidly changing right now. You know, we're far more globalised mm. and she actually sees higher education as playing this very distinct and unique role in this sort of changing environment into the future. In addition to teaching subject specific knowledge and skills, Universities will be teaching young people to be global citizens, to be citizens of the future, to be aware of 
the global challenges that face the world and how they fit into finding solutions for that. And in terms of communication, I see universities as helping students discover more about themselves and also helping students then reflect on their own place in the world and to be able to articulate to other people and to employers what their particular strengths are and what positive things they can offer uh, to the community and to society. So I see that as being one of the key future roles of universities. For many of us, when we go to university, it's the first time that we've really um, met people from around the world. You know, that's one of the amazing things about universities is that they are so multicultural. And so it's a it's a great opportunity to make friends from all around the world and to really, yeah, like you say, become a global citizen and have a wider awareness um, beyond just, you know, the place that you grow up. Yeah, so Harriet Watt University actually won International University of the Year in 2018 because of their global nature and diverse campuses. We'll be back with more stories from Harriet Watt's psychology department in just a moment. But first, we're going to hear from a Harriet Watt graduate about how being at the university is giving them new and brilliant opportunities out there in the real world. Hi, my name is Shaima El Hag, and I'm currently doing my PhD in Harriet Watt on lifestyle-based interventions, which are community-based activities such as dancing classes and Tai Chi classes that might maintain and enhance physical health as well as cognitive function and psychological well-being in healthy older adults. I also completed my undergraduate in Harriet Watt University in psychology. So what I enjoy the most about studying PhD at Harry Watt University is definitely the community. They make me feel very comfortable and at home. Before I did the PhD, I was quite scared about the lonely aspect of a PhD that people have told me about, but I have never felt that way in Harry Watt University. And I did have the opportunity and privilege to also meet and be part of a great team, the Aging Lab team, and also the School of Social Sciences postgraduate supportive community. So there is a direct link between what I did at Harriet Watt and what I am doing now. And the main link is my supervisor. After I graduated, I kept in touch with him and he supported me and motivated me throughout the journey. After I graduated, I went on to do two masters in two different universities. For the first postgraduate that I did, it was in counseling and psychotherapy, and I wasn't sure that that was the right thing for me, so I did contact my supervisor for guidance, and he advised me that I was very good at research, and he did show me some of the skills and some of the things that I'm good at that I might not have seen in myself. Um, so I came back to Harriet Watt and applied for a few roles here. So if you're interested in finding out more about psychology or any other course at Harry Watt, head to www.hw.ac.uk. You're listening to A Future Made, a podcast from Harriet Watt University with Anna Pajajski and Robbie Armstrong. So far, we've been hearing from Mary Stewart and Deborah Hall on language, communication and social interaction. Next up, we're going to hear from Aveen Miwardelli, an assistant professor at the School of Social Sciences. 
and she studies speech, language and communication disorders, including automatic speech recognition, which is known as ASR. And in particular, she's focusing on how ASR can be applied to improve speech difficulty identification diagnosis, which is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But crucially, she's developed a screening instrument for speech and language disorders in children. And this is really interesting because you think about automatic speech recognition software, that's normally developed for adults. And it's actually a real challenge to automatically recognize speech in children, because I imagine there's just a far wider divergence in pronunciation. Um, So here she is on the importance of developing such a tool. The government is already saying that we have these issues in the UK. Why are we not screening for speech and language difficulties, particularly as now we know that um, just like screening for eyesight, because if children can't see the whiteboard, then they don't do as well in their education. So their educational attainment is limited. And if they can't hear the teacher very well, they also don't do as well. And we do screen for those in primary school or preschool. Yet, even though in the past 20, 30, maybe even 50 years, there's been a lot of research that says, well, actually, if you um, can't communicate very well with your teachers and your peers in class, you also don't do very well. Yet we're still not screening for speech and language in schools. For me, it was more about trying to make that job easier for the teachers, not just from the perspective that it no longer should rely on the teacher to do the job. One, because that's not what their training is and it's quite unfair to expect them to know all the symptoms associated with all the speech and language difficulties, but also to take the burden away from the schools to dedicate a very large, or I I don't know how much it costs them, but I'm sure it's quite a lot, um, to try and uh, get a speech and language therapist into the school to assess these children. So I wanted to take that burden away. Here she is again on the importance of spotting disfluency and speech disorders. 60% of young offenders um, have speech, language and communication needs. Um, And that 88% of the long-term unemployed men also have speech, language and communication needs. Um, Research also indicates, or findings I believe from the Department for Education indicates that at GCSE level, um, 13% of those who have speech language communication needs achieve A to C grades at GCSE compared to 79 or 70 odd percent of the students or pupils who do not have speech language communication needs. And all these children are being missed. So they reach adulthood, they become part of these statistics, they're part of this 88% of the long-term unemployed men, part of the 60% of young offenders, where they could have picked been picked up much earlier in their education identified, referred for intervention, referred for help, but they were missed. So developing this assessment is crucial because it will enable teachers to identify these children so that they're not missed and they don't become part of the statistic. 
So some of the statistics there are like really hard to get your head around. And on top of that 60% and 88% figure that she quoted there, children in areas of greater socioeconomic deprivation have higher rates of speech and communication needs. Um, And they're immediately disadvantaged and at risk for at risk of literacy difficulties, behavioral and psychological problems and speech and language communication needs. They're the most common type of educational need uh, in children. Around 1.4 million kids in the UK have long-term speech and language communication needs that they won't grow out of. So that is like two or three kids in every classroom Mm. would be affected by this. That's huge. And I've never even really heard of this before. Yeah. I mean, if you, it's similar to dyslexia as well. Mm. I think it has a similar effect. If dyslexia isn't spotted and if there aren't interventions to give people additional support, then a lot of people with dyslexia will end up with behavioural problems and can end up in prison as well. So there's a really high instance mm. in prison populations of, of people with dyslexia as well. So again, it's it's just not thinking through the interventions and whose role it is to spot these. And, you know, it's, it's mm. sort of just like we fumble our way through these things without really thinking about people who are in neurotypical and and that has huge huge ramifications well it's prioritizing the ones that achieve isn't it and that do well and it's it's focusing all of the resources on the top 10 percent whereas actually a huge amount of social good could happen if they focus on the people that weren't achieving those grades and asking why and what could we do to help Aveen is of a Kurdish background, so immigration is something that she's thought about a lot because with immigration and with multiple languages comes more speech and language communication needs. Mm. And given the sort of huge rise in international migration to the US, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, we're going to have so many more languages in the global north. So that's just going to become more and more of a trend that we're going to need to think about in education. Migration is on the rise, so I looked at the UN International Migration Report from 2017, and I know there's a newer one, but the one in 2017 said that most international migration is one directional, so they they end up in Europe, in the US, or in places like Australia or New Zealand, so basically the developed countries, but mostly towards the West rather than places like Japan. And this means that we will have multilingualism, bilingualism, all those aspects will be on the rise. And we know that that also is related to speech and language difficulties, at least early on in children, particularly if if English is their additional language. So we we need to look at speech and language difficulties. We need to, to try and develop ways of identifying these children, particularly because this migration issue as well. Here she is talking about the pitfalls of not incorporating diverse accents into the early stages of her research for this tool. My research developed in England and now we're in Scotland, right? So we need to look at dialects and accents as well. How well does the ASR identify a Scottish child speaking with a Scottish accent as being fluent, even though they're saying the word differently, the target word to someone who might say it in in the English accent. So we need to make these differentiations as well. 
even for adult speech, as good as it is, it doesn't take into account these dialect issues. And now that I'm at Harriet Watt University, I've had to reconsider this. Like, oh my God, all the data I have, the data that I use for the ASR is with children who speak English accents. <laughs> so, and primarily the Southern English accent. So no Northern accents and definitely not Scottish. So I need to, yeah, I need to reevaluate how this goes. And I'm trying to find collaborators within Harriet Watt and within Scotland who work with ASR and dialects and accents, uh, particularly the Scottish ones, so that it's, it's inclusive, right? If you're going to have a screening test, it needs to be inclusive. You can't say, oh, I've developed the screening test, but I'm sorry, only English children can use it. It's just not fair. And also it's not eff efficient or effective. Yeah, it's a really good point. And, and that problem becomes compounded when you're combining it with the migration issue as well, right? So you've got children from lots of different countries coming to Scotland, learning English with a Scottish accent. Maybe, you know, their teachers might be from different places. They would speak with different accents. Actually, a friend of mine who's Scottish started teaching a primary school in London and his kids were from all over the world. You know, the, his whole class spoke different languages at home. And he, I think they were very, very little kids. So they all started growing up in London, but speaking with a quite strong West Glasgow accent, <laughs> which he was very proud to have achieved. <laughs> Sounds quite cute. I'm happy with that. That's good. There should be more Scottish international teachers. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> but she makes a really important point, obviously, that this technology has to be, you know, accessible to everyone. Yeah, it's about inclusivity, isn't it? Yeah. Language and communication, this is a really important part of the puzzle. We talked about technology and inclusivity in the first episode. You know, now we've been talking about, you know, speech and language difficulties. We're talking about the way that technology, language and communication intersects in academia and student well-being, online learning, and then also talking about, you know, autism and mental health and the language you use. The themes in today's episode feel like a complement to the themes in the first episode. Mm. They're the same but different. We're sort of looking at a different part of the problem and what we need to do to address things, to make communication, to make language, to make education all better and more inclusive for everyone. Definitely. But again, like last episode, it's the cross-collaboration between experts of different sort of specialities, right? Um, being able to combine computer technology with robotics like we heard last time with social sciences with people that understand education that's where the exciting stuff happens and it sounds like Harriet Watt are really good at connecting people and making those connections and making those collaborations happen. The third and final episode of this mini-series will focus on ageing well and the psychology behind ageing, so keep a lookout for that in your podcast feed. For now, thanks for listening to A Future Made. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss an episode. Just search for A Future Made. Or you can head over to Harriet Watt University's website at hw.ac.uk. Hold up. 